This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Speak truth. Speak truth. We start. This is the kingdom. You're listening to the End Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. With your no good and camp, you're listening to the End Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibbony. That's me. And my co-host, the West Side Chicago representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. What's going on, brother? Oh, everything. How are you, sir? Doing well, doing well. You know I have to ask you uh, what you thought about the Super Bowl. Hopefully you realized that Chicago wasn't in it. But what were your general thoughts about how it went? Were you entertained? Was it cool? Did you like the outcome? What's going on? Well, you know, it was a, uh, a very nice football game. Uh, it did not include the Bears, uh, you know, so it, it cannot stir one's passions, you know, as much <laughs> as you would hope football would. But it was it was it was a good game. Fair enough. Fair enough. See, I, I, I was bored, man. Now, I want to start off because I did throw some salt and some hate at uh, Tom Brady. Uh, and I, I just want to give him his props. The man got seven rings. I give I give, you know, props where they are uh, deserved. And so let's let's give that man, you know, a shout out. Tom Brady did win his seventh. That's a huge deal. Uh, that defense played awesome, but I, I thought the game was a little boring. It just wasn't a really exciting game. Uh, Kansas City didn't really get off. I thought the officials were calling it a little too tight early on, but that defense, especially of, of Tampa, was uh, was making it happen. Man, they got some they got some dogs on that side of the ball. Man, yeah, so, no, they were crazy. Yeah, I, I've seen better games, but we're gonna give the props where they're due. Hopefully, um, neither of those teams will be back in the Super Bowl next year, but we can only hope. The secret is to be writing while you watch such a football game. I think that that's what made it help helpful for me. Ah, okay, okay. Hey, whatever, whatever makes it work makes it work for you. We got some interesting uh, conversations coming up today. So as usual, folks, grab your Bible, get your mind right, and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. And I want to get everybody's mind right as we get into this. So allow me to start just with some scripture, if you don't mind. And I'll start with Psalm thirty-five. Uh, verse 10, which says, my whole being will exclaim, who is like you, Lord? You rescue the poor from those too strong for them, the poor and needy from those who rob them. Psalm 82, 3, defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. And Psalm 140, verse 12, I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. Let me hit you with some some realities that that we need to face. In America today, almost 12 million children live in poverty. That's 16% of our children, 5 million of them or 7% live in what's considered extreme poverty. 30% of the children in poverty are black, 24% of, well, let me say that again. I, I said that wrong. 
30% of black children live in poverty. That's different. 24% of Hispanic children live in poverty. And 9% of white children live in poverty. The states with the highest rates of child poverty are Mississippi, New Mexico, and Arkansas. America has a higher child poverty rate than other developed countries like Australia, the United Kingdom, and Russia. That's right, Russia. Almost 67% of children in poverty come from single parent homes. Something to keep in mind. But I'll say this, Chris, I am thankful to be able to say that it looks like politicians on both sides of the aisle. This is one area where saying both sides is OK, hopefully, where politicians on both sides of the aisle are focusing in on child poverty. Uh, we talked uh, a few weeks ago about Biden's American Rescue Plan. Uh, that plan is now going through the process of uh, budget reconciliation. And um, uh, Biden says that he's trying to cut poverty in half, child poverty in half. And I think that's an excellent goal to have. And so just to give you an overview of what is in Biden's plan, it starts with a direct payment to families of uh, $1,400. And then uh, there's a temporary increase in the child tax credit. Now, you will recall that Chris poo-pooed that idea because he didn't think it was direct enough. And I think that's a fair assessment. It also uh, you also see that Biden has made increases in benefits regarding food and nutrition. Uh, especially for, for, for children. So that's good. But I'll have to say, Chris, that to my surprise, and maybe I shouldn't have been surprised. Maybe I wasn't giving the man enough credit. To my surprise, Mitt Romney has countered uh, that proposal, not by just saying no, but by, provoke, by, by, by proposing an even more generous policy dealing with poverty in families. Last week, Senator Romney introduced what he called the Family Security Act. The Family Security Act would replace the child tax credit with a new child allowance. Families would receive, for instance, uh, $1,400 to support unborn children. That should say something to, to, to pro-life folks. They'd receive $4,200 uh, for children uh, from zero to five years old and $3,000 for children from six to 17. The maximum benefit that a family could receive, no matter how many children you have, would be uh, $15,000 a year. So just so you know, for unborn children, there's $1,400, uh, $4,200 for, for children from zero to five, and from six to uh, 17, that would be $3,000. Now, this would be administered through the Social Security Administration, which many uh, experts say would uh, increase the amount of participation. More Americans would be t participating because it's administered through uh, that administration. Romney, unlike some of the folks that, that kind of throw uh, numbers around, he also explained how he how he's going to pay for. It. And this is some things that there's some stuff that people will like, some some things other folks won't like. He said that he would one of the big ones is he said he would eliminate the state and local tax deduction. Uh, this will most likely get a lot of criticism from Democrats because most of those deductions and most of those funds flow to blue states that already have high taxes. So if your state or local government has really high taxes, there's a deduction that you could take. But say, for instance, you're in uh, t uh, Texas or somewhere like that, some of these other red states, you don't have high taxes, so you're not going to get that uh, uh, deduction. He also said that he would eliminate the child dependent care uh, tax credit. 
So those are those are two big things. But this is a very uh, a big proposal and, and, and one people need to look into. Now, let me also say this. Matt Brunig, who is nobody's fiscal fiscal conservative, rated this plan higher than Biden's plan. He said it's even more generous than Biden's plan. Now, what was somewhat surprising to me is that the plan has already come under attack from senators, uh, from Republican senators, Lee and Rubio. You see, Lee and Rubio are in favor and have been really talking a lot about for years about the child tax credit, which, again, would be eliminated by Romney. And they think that uh, doing it the way that Romney wants to do it would incentivize people not to work. Right. So the, the, the top child tax credit comes after you work and you get your check and all that other stuff. This one is more direct. Now, my pushback and the pushback that was also made by uh, conservative uh, Ross Douthit is that Romney's proposal is received by people even if they're employed. So there really, really isn't that disincentive to be employed because you would receive it even if you're employed or not. That's something can, to consider. But, Chris, I just wanted to get your thoughts on these poverty plans and, and, and what you favor, what you think is good and what you think has to go. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is uh it's, it's, it's almost funny to watch it play out, you know, with the with the characters that it is playing out among. But, um, you know, I come from, uh, you know, primarily from kind of like education policy where we uh, like know this and believe this, you know, to the core that uh, early investment is necessary. You either invest early or you pay later. Um, and it's so much uh, like just overwhelming amounts of data that show that that is true. Uh, that is very exciting uh, to see that there's a moment where we may be getting ready to do something big uh, on this issue. Um, and, and for the believer, I think we, we see that ethic also in, in Proverbs uh, 22, train up a child in the way that he should go when he's old, uh, he won't depart from it. We see the same ethic of, uh, of early investment having long-term payoff. Uh, and so I think we want to do that. Um, I think it's good for our politics because as you said, Justin, this is a place where uh, a conservative and a progressive can really use their own kind of way of thinking about politics to arrive at the same sort of policy, uh, right? So if, if you're, if you're pro-family uh, conservative, uh, this policy furthers your cause. Uh, if you're a, a pro-equity progressive, this policy uh, furthers your cause. Um, and so I, I, I think it, it's great that there's an opportunity to do something. Obviously, as I said in a previous show, I do think that um, more direct payment uh, is is better. I think on both of those fronts, when you really dig into EITC, one of the big problems is that, you know, 40%, I think, of EITC uh, goes to, to families who are, are not in the most severe uh, kind of categories of poverty. That's usually attributed to the fact that, uh, that the one, poor families that, that are very poor, they're not working. Uh, so they're not having as much of a, a tax burden. Uh, some of it is refundable, but the more of a tax burden you have, the more you can take advantage of EITC. Um, and then there's just the logistical challenge of taking advantage of a tax credit. And I think direct payments um, will do a lot better on those fronts. And, and when it comes to the work incentive, and, and, and then I'll, uh, I'll be quiet, uh, I, I think that that's a, a big 
a big part of this, right? This idea that somehow doing something on, you know, child poverty uh, is going to disincentivize work. One, how incredibly, I don't know, pejorative, paternalistic, just short-sighted and a a bad view of, of people to assume that every person who is is struggling against poverty um, is automatically going to be inclined uh, not to work. The key is, as Romney has done and his plan, to build in a way where you're not automatically kicked off uh, of the program when you start to build. And I think that, Justin, is probably where I would love to see somebody uh, really change the way we're talking about um, this whole issue, right? I, I think that I think people want to be for something more than they want to be against stuff. Like we have had over the last like, you know, half a century or more, we've had wars on drugs, war on poverty, war on crime, war on terror. Uh, and, and we keep doing all this like anti stuff, not to mention the way that we fight each other in politics. But I think people are kind of like exhausted on that. Um, and, and in my mind, I think that this, this message could be more about what we're building and how we're creating new opportunities for American children and American families. Like, it's not just about defeating poverty. It's about promoting prosperity uh, in a huge way for a future generation. I think that you could get people rallied around this uh, with that message. Um, and it also directs the policy, right? Like, you, you I think you move through in, in that direction of direct payment if you're thinking about not just how do we create a so-called social safety net and and all those things, which I'm, I'm not against, you know, a social safety net, but, you know, at some point, can we make it where, you know, kind of like life is not this high wire act and we don't need so much of a social safety net because we're really helping folks build family and generational wealth. We're creating opportunities for people. Um, I think that kind of positive forward looking message um, may help bring some focus to the policy and, kind of rally people around it. Yeah, and this could be, you know, really, and, and, and one thing I want to point out, you said the EITC, that's the Earned Income Tax Credit, for, for just so everybody knows. Um, this could be the signal of some kind of paradigm shift, right? We did, I didn't expect this to come from Mitt Romney. Uh, I remember when I saw that he was going against the direct checks, the, the 1,400 direct checks, that he was saying, I don't know if we want to do that. I was like, well, here we go again. Right. Not knowing that he was actually working on a plan uh, uh, to, to, to make sure that we are looking at uh, poverty and, and tying it to families. And so I, I agree with you. I think when we can say, hey, maybe we're doing this for different reasons, but let's find a way to, to help the people. And there are limits to this. Right. Like there's a reason that we don't just come out and say, hey, just give everybody $100,000. Why not just give every family $100,000? We have to be practical. We have to be realistic. This is where I disagree with some of the democratic socialists. But I think they've brought to the table and made some changes where people might not go as far as they, they want them to, but they've changed the conversation in a lot of ways. Now, at the beginning of this segment, I read a few scriptures to you, uh, and I think that's important. And, and, and as we look at the scriptures and how we apply those scriptures, I'll say this. It it isn't my belief that those scriptures necessarily require that we support any particular poverty policy. Right. It doesn't mean that anytime somebody uh, presents a policy and says this is about poverty, that you have to support it because you're a Christian and you care about the poor. That's not exactly 
uh, what, what what's being said here. But I do think that those scriptures condemn a lack of concern about poverty. I do think that they um, condemn us continually putting our own interests over the interests of the poor. And I think they condemn a lack of good faith in our dealings surrounding poverty policy. Right. So it may not tell us exactly where we have to stand on every single detail, but there's a certain posture. There's a certain compassion and a certain seriousness by which we should address these issues. Now, I'll remind everybody that in the Old Testament and Chris can correct me if I'm wrong. God treated the failure to care for the poor as a covenant breach. Some of us like to focus on and talk about uh, what he had to say about sexual immorality and what he had to say about uh, idol worship. And all those things are important. We don't have to minimize that either. But what about the statements that God or he made that God made or God made through his uh, prophets regarding the mistreatment or disregard of the poor? We see these statements in Amos. We see these statements in Isaiah, James and Luke. What I would pull from this and what the scripture says, if I'm going to apply it, is that Christians need to be seriously concerned about poverty policy and we can't leave it in the abstract or just leave it in theory. Just saying no when somebody brings up a policy that's needed by some is not enough. So I want to give a shout out to Biden, Romney and others who are doing the hard work of seeking real solutions. Uh, I'll turn it over to you, Chris, for the last word uh, in this segment. Yeah, I, I would I would uh, just say a good amen, uh, Justin, to what what you just said about the uh, the prophets. Like we we have to take that very seriously. Um, you know, I'll add a shout out to uh, uh, Cory Booker, uh, Senator Booker uh, has has put out a plan, uh, not on the same, uh, quite in the same lane as these two plans from uh, Biden and and Romney, uh, but he's got a plan. Uh, you know. I think he's calling it baby bonds uh, that creates basically savings accounts um, that would would become mature and accessible to uh, to young folks who are growing up in poverty when they turn eighteen. They will get access to that. Um, so, I, and, and I think it just speaks Justin to what you said. Uh, the fact that we're having these conversations uh, is very, very important. Uh, it's important for the believer to take poverty very seriously. Um, but, but also, you know, when you are looking at this from a, a pro-family uh, perspective, uh, you know, you have to understand that the thing that is like, and I hope I don't run afoul here, but the thing that is really making folks who want to go out there, get married, raise kids in a in a two-parent household, is not always that like folks are brainwashed by progressive media and they don't believe in it. Um, a lot of times there are real economic barriers to doing that. And people want to do it, but they can't do it. They or at least they feel like they can't do it because of these uh, you know, these economic issues. And so this is very much a, a a way to address poverty, which is something that Christians should be all in on. Uh, this is also a way to address, you know, the the, the real crisis of family that we have, uh, which is something that Christians should be all in on. So I hope that lots and lots of believers everywhere uh, really keep pushing all sides to the table uh, to get something significant done uh, on this particular piece. I'm with you on that. Let's bust a move on on this poverty issue. Uh, We will be right back with the next segment. Give us a sec. 
And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. You are with uh, Justin Gibney, the president of the Ann Campaign, and Reverend uh, Christopher Butler. Now, now, Chris, in November, uh, Oregon voters voted on a referendum that decriminalizes all hard drugs. And this this new uh, law went into effect at the end of January 2021. Now, we know that quite a few states and localities have decriminalized marijuana, but not things like meth, uh, LSD, cocaine, heroin and so on. Uh, Just to be clear, we want to be clear on this. This decriminalizes drugs in non-commercial contexts, meaning that selling drugs is still illegal. Uh, But people who are caught with drugs will receive a small fine or be sent to addiction recovery centers and things like that uh, now on. They won't be sent to jail. So the drugs are aren't legalized, but they are decriminalized. Haven Wheelock, who uh, was a proponent of the law, said that it takes a lot of courage to support something new. And I'm proud of our state. Uh, Chris, I think this presents kind of a tension. Um, This is a response, at least in part, I believe, to the war on drugs. At least that was a big, a very big talking point in Oregon for passing this legislation. That initiative, the war on drugs, had devastating effects, uh, especially in the black community. Uh, I hope people see now, and I think most people do, that it was serious overreach and that it demonstrated a lack of compassion or at least a lack of consideration for certain people, even those who are dealing drugs. Right now, I will say this, Chris, I think that some of us, as we do our kind of uh, Monday morning quarterbacking and as we kind of second guess what happened at that at that time, which is easy to do. I think we're doing a little bit of revisionist history, too, in that conversation. It was clearly black, a bad policy. You won't see any um, defense of that policy here. But I'm not quite willing to say that it was created in bad faith or with some kind of sort of ill will by everybody that voted for it. Many people at that time, even in the black community, supported harsh criminal punishments uh, surrounding drugs because they had to live through what drugs were doing to the black community uh, and other communities. So uh, what we know is that the war on drugs failed in many respects. Uh, We know that no human rule is infallible in this particular law, uh, again, failed miserably. The question is, and where I think that the tension lies, is, is this response to that the right response? Uh, and just kind of want you to weigh in on that. What are your thoughts on uh, uh, of this approach to some of the um, the errors of or the unintended consequences of the war on drugs? Yeah. I, so I have uh, a couple of things on this. One, um, I appreciate uh, how you kind of laid this out, Justin, um, in, in two ways. One, when we look at the uh, the war on drugs and the impact that it had uh, in the black community, we, we definitely have to try to give some some thought to the fact that it, it wasn't without support inside of the community. Um, at the same time, uh, it it's a little difficult for me. Like I, I can't help but to be aware of the fact that as uh, drug addiction has become uh, a, a visible and, and deeply felt 
issue outside of you know black communities and in white communities that these types of uh, policies that I think folks have advocated for for a long time are actually being enacted in places. That said, I do think that that this is the way to go. The other thing that I, I love about the way you laid this out is that we have to understand that there is a a real and material difference between uh, decriminalization, legalization, and commercialization. Right? I live in a state where uh, we decriminalized, and I was in favor of that. Marijuana was even legalized for medical uh, purposes. I'm not as crazy ever about commercialization, um, where we're building industry on vice and addiction. I, I get it. The marijuana thing is is uh, is in policy, and I'm I'm not in the in the in the in the mindset of like let's go back and and undo that. Um, but th- there is a difference between those three: decriminalize, legalize, and commercialize. I think that it is a mistake to criminalize addiction. Right, like we, we, we and and in decriminalizing, you're not making uh, it legal. You are not making it commercial. You are just changing the way you address the problem. You you still view it as a problem. You're changing the way you address the problem. One of the things that I really like about this policy, as it has been proposed um, and and passed, is that there's a cap right now, forty five million a year, on how much of the uh, commercialized marijuana that they have in Oregon, how much of that revenue goes to kind of general operating, that's capped at $45 million. The rest has to go toward treatment uh, and building out this kind of like treatment approach to addiction in the state of Oregon. Now, I think that it will be a mistake, and there's already conversation about this. When you start just looking at at this issue of addiction and, and start looking at it as as a a road to, to more tax revenue, I think you get on a slippery slope where you go from decriminalize to legalize and eventually to commercialize. And I don't think you ever want to see that, especially not with these very hard drugs. Uh, but but taking the commercialization of marijuana, targeting that revenue to real approaches to treatment of addiction, uh, I think this is good policy. I mean, because now we're, we are even with the with the marijuana, what they're doing in Oregon is they're they're treating addiction and not just taxing it. Um, and so I'm I'm hopeful about the policy. I think it certainly needs to be watched. I think the administration of the policy, uh, you know, as they say, the devil is in the details. But the idea of of changing our approach to how we deal with the issue of addiction in our society, I, I'm I'm all in for that. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm certainly. Uh pro-rehabilitation and uh, making sure people get the help that they need. I I think that's great. Uh, And as we both know, policy, just like the last policy we were talking about when it comes to poverty, even policy in this, with any serious issue, policy making is tough. Uh, It comes with unintended consequences, things you may have never seen coming, uh, makes policy really, really hard. Uh, And so I I get that. Um, I'm going to push back just a little bit. I mean, I, I know that a lot of people are cheering this on. This is kind of like the, the trending thing. And we'll see whether it's a better policy than that which came from the war on drugs. But I want to be clear on what it's not. This is not a solution to the original problem, right? Uh, which was how drugs devastate families and communities. 
Um, it doesn't solve that problem. Now, it may or may not correct the unintended consequences of the war on drugs. But here's why I have some some pretty strong reservations about the decriminalization of hard drugs. It seems to me that the focus is almost completely on how to deal with addiction, which I support, you know, that side of it, while not giving enough consideration to things like the availability of drugs, uh, deterrence and disincentivizing drug use in, in general. Um we have to be very careful about attaching stigma uh, to certain things in society. That can be very bad if you attach stigma too strongly or at all to, some, to certain things. But call me old school. I think we also have to be careful about removing stigma in a way. And I know you're, not, you're saying they're not saying drugs are OK, but policy impacts the way that people see things. This policy could very well make drugs more acceptable. I mean, accessible, make drugs more accessible, especially to children, because if there's no attempt to hide it at all, that, that, you know, I know we're talking about fines. I know we're talking about some of that other stuff, but that's, you know, that's tough. I think it could also make drugs more acceptable um, and that wouldn't be a good look either. So so my reservation is, is just about the focus in on on addiction, which is huge. But are we losing something with removing the stigma when it, and, 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 the, and with the availability and accessibility when it comes to children? Um, and that's what, one of the things that I think we really need to take a hard look at. That's why I'm not just accepting this with completely open arms. I think that's a, a really big question that we can't ignore. It's not that we shouldn't pay attention to rehabilitation and all that other stuff. But we got to think about the kids, too. We got to think about the impact that it has uh, on them. So I'm not completely sold on it. Um, if and it and also goes kind of back because this is an experiment. So the DA and one of the DAs in Oregon says, hey, you know, this may sound good. And I know, you know, this is where it's trending and uh, the, the narrative is, is going in this direction. But let's be clear, this is an experiment. And I think this kind of goes back to my criticism of progressivism in general. The lady that I quoted before said doing something different is hard and that's a good thing. Well, doing something different in and of itself isn't virtuous, right? It can be good and some traditions and laws need to go in different directions, but doing something different isn't always necessarily the answer. I think we have to dig a little more deeply than that. Uh, and, and again, here's my general, one of my general criticisms, and it may apply here, it may not. One of my general criticisms of progressivism. Whereas the downsides of conservatism in a, in a lot of cases are blunt in impact, right? You, you see the impact, good or bad, you see it. The downsides of progressivism, in my estimation, tend to be insidious, right? Tend not to be immediately detectable. They can be very dangerous, but are usually more gradual. And, and and more and more, it seems that progressives are going to get the world that they have been seeking for so long, uh, especially in America. And I think that they'll find the world that they're seeking to be severely flawed and possibly even more flawed in certain areas than the world that they ventured to correct. Uh, but only time will tell. So, I, so I'm never you know, I, I'm just trying to think of some of the unintended consequences that could come with this. Um, and, and reasons why we should be very hesitant just to have a trend all around America just to embrace 
uh, decriminalization of hard drugs. Now, I've already said that the decriminalization of things like marijuana, I get that. Chris, me and you are on the same thing when it comes to commercialization and recreational use. We've been against that, too. But I do think there's reason, good reason for Christians to have some reservations about this particular policy. And I'll let you finish this out. Yeah, I, I think that those are, are very good points. And and it's why we need folks in the uh, policy space who are not fixed in these kind of uh, in this progressive conservative dichotomy. Right. Because one of the opportunities that you have here that I don't know is going to find a lot of voice with the most progressive uh, advocates of the position. But I think there's an opportunity here to draw a distinction um, between the the kind of drug pusher and the drug user. And for, for, for those of us, you know, and, and we'll maybe do a segment one day on like our life stories, but for those of us who, who have come up very close uh, to drugs and the impact that they have on family, uh, I think there's a real distinction between the drug user and the drug pusher. Uh, one of the reasons I, I like this is because it, it gives you an opportunity. The policy doesn't do it on its own, but it does create an opportunity to really target the real bad guys uh, in this situation. One of the difficulties with the traditional approach to policing drugs is that too often, you know, the the folks who are going down and been treated like the really bad guys in this scenario are the folks who are addicted to drugs and in a way, you know, are, are, are kind of victims of what I think is a more significant crime, which is bringing these drugs into the community and, and not just the folks on the ground. I mean, like the whole system. Right. So you, you have to target that. I, I love to hear a district attorney saying like, all right, this is cool, but we'll see. Right. Uh, because you need to aggressively uh, pursue and, and prosecute uh, bringing drugs into communities, victimizing people who uh, are susceptible to addiction, who are already addicted. I think that's really bad stuff. Um, and we need to go after it. Uh, so, but th- I do think this creates an opportunity to distinguish. Um, and, and I think that the, the combination of, of voices and, and hopefully at some point just a more critical and thoughtful approach by all individuals to policymaking, uh, you know, can, can support this so that it doesn't go, uh, Justin, to, into some of the things that I think you very rightly point out uh, are potential you know, downsides to a policy like this. Yeah. And so for the for the record, I, I value that distinction as well. I think the distinction between the user and uh, the drug dealer is very important or the, you know, the folks importing it and exporting it and all that stuff. That That is a very um, important distinction to make. And so I, I support not uh, throwing a bunch of people who are addicted in jail. I do just want us to focus in or at least spend some time or f- for folks who are listening to this to think, spend some time thinking about how availability and stigma and all those other things play into this as well. Very good conversation. We got one more segment left and we will be back in a second. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the And Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the And Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. 
the end campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. We are back with the Church Politics Podcast. I want to talk about something, uh, an address that was made, uh, an address that someone made to their own party uh, last week. Uh, Some Republicans in Nebraska, including the Lincoln County GOP, are trying to punish Republican Senator Ben Sass for calling out President Trump's lies and his other uh, bad behavior that played a central role in the Capitol insurrection from January 6th. Apparently, uh, some people think that Sass was supposed to excuse Trump's behavior or find a way to blame his opposition. Well, last week, Sass addressed his detractors. He gave a virtual address aimed at the Nebraska GOP state committee, and he didn't back down. Uh, If you haven't seen this video, it's a very short address. It's about just over five minutes. And again, he didn't back down. He didn't even try to talk them out of censuring him. He said that he heard their threats and that he didn't think that their threats and their sentiments Uh, represented most Nebraskans. He called some folks on the state committee political addicts. Sass went on to say that when he ran for office, he promised to speak out against any leader, Republican or Democrat, that crossed the line. So in calling out Trump, he says that he was merely keeping a campaign promise. He defended not voting for Trump in 2016 and 2020, which he received a lot of uh, criticism for. And he uh, he stood by uh, his decision not to serve on Trump's reelection committee in 2019. And he wanted to be clear. He said, look, I want to be clear about this. I want to be clear about where the threat of censure came from. He said it wasn't because he violated any principle. It wasn't because he had abandoned conservatism. He said it was plainly because he wouldn't bend the knee to Trump. And he ended by saying this. Personality cults aren't conservative. Conspiracy theories aren't conservative. Lying, uh, lying that an election has been stolen is not conservative and acting like politics is a religion. Isn't conservative for the sake of context, before we get into this, Chris, uh, and many people who listen to this have been listening to this for a while, uh, know where I come from, I think that the GOP, especially the Senate GOP's uh, response to Trump was generally charm and soft, uh, that it was anemic. And I also think that at certain points, uh, Sass could have done more himself uh, to go against Trump, especially in some of the votes that he took. Um, He seemed to go silent for a while, and I was a little bit uh, disappointed in that because I did have very high expectations of, of Sass. But I will say this. Not voting for Trump twice, calling out his lies when most folks were afraid to, uh, showed that Sass has a high level of integrity. Uh, and I wish that was more common. Because, Chris, I'll, I'll be honest with you, 
In my opinion, many of the problems concerning our political landscape today exist because too many of our representatives are primarily worried about being reelected. That's their primary concern. That's right. Once they get into office, many many of them immediately shift to self-preservation mode. The first goal is to stay in office as long as possible. And enacting good policy is too often secondary or, or, or correcting leaders that need to be corrected is often secondary. Sadly, the question isn't primarily what's right, uh, what's the position of integrity and principle or what the people need. The primary question becomes, what will keep me in office? What do the donors want so that I can keep the money flowing? And how can I pacify the activist crowd, whether they're right or not, so so that they'll stop bugging me, right? And if you think that only happens in the GOP, then you are fooling yourselves. I'll give you an example. This is why most of the Democratic politicians who were pro-life or who at least wanted to limit abortions in, in some way no longer even talk that way. They have the same faith. They still talk about faith. But somehow the application of that faith changes when the donors and the party turn up the heat. How convenient. If you're considering running for office uh, and you want to be faithful in that position, remember this, that as a Christian, losing an election is not the worst outcome. Compromising your convictions or or, or succumbing to corruption is far worse. And I'm no fool. Let's be honest. Nobody wants to lose. You can be savvy. You can choose your battles to a certain extent. Every decision doesn't have to be politically suicidal. But winning an election is never worth going against your principles. And you have to believe that. Everybody says that. I mean, you there's nobody that you would ask uh, in, in Congress or the Senate that wouldn't say that. But you have to believe it. And as a Christian, unless you're willing to take that stand, then in my opinion, and Chris may disagree, you don't need to run for office because you will eventually support injustice or unrighteousness if winning is your ultimate goal. Too many Republicans bent the knee to Trump. And we'll and they'll and they'll have to answer for that. And too many Christians who are Democrats bent the knee to the abortion and sexual revolution lobby. And they, too, will have to answer for that. Chris, what are your thoughts on Ben Sass and uh, the address that he made? I love the address. Um, because, Justin, not only do I agree with everything you just said about the fact that, you know, we need political leaders who are willing to... Uh, to stick to some principle and and not that we want to override like the will of the people, because it, like you said, if you lose an election, that's not the worst uh, possible outcome. Uh, but people, I think the, the voting public, the, the governed public uh, are disturbed by not being able to pin down where people are on stuff. Um, 
you know, and, and that to me is one of the, the big reasons we need principled leadership. Uh, the other thing I like, though, about what what SAS did is that I don't know. I, I think having been around so many campaigns and, and maybe these statewide are a little bit different, but so many times, you know, these campaigns, Justin, come down to who runs the better campaign. And I think some of this stuff from political parties and these large media outfits is a little bit boogeyman that if you say anything against Donald Trump, then everybody who says anything against him, they'll never be elected again. And, you know, the Republican Party is just toast now because of Donald Trump and nobody like I think that it becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy because leaders hear that stuff, they believe it, and they start to move their positions rather than strengthening their infrastructure, spending more time in their districts, talking to voters, making the case, and and running good campaigns. And and a lot of times, I mean, like, even you look at the, the, the postmortem on the 2016 election that gave us Donald Trump, it wasn't that the whole world and, and the whole nation was so all in on Donald Trump, a lot of it was when you look at, you know, the the research and the reviews that came out of it, you saw Hillary Clinton run not as strong a campaign as maybe she could have run. Um, and so I like a leader standing up and saying, I'm going to stick with my guns. One, this is what I believe. Two, this is what I think people in Nebraska believe. And I'm going to fight for my political future. I'm going to try to run a great campaign that goes to people and makes the argument. Um, and, and, and I believe in that because I, I think that some of this stuff, I mean, and, and obviously, you know, political narrative and, um, you know, the message and, and kind of where the national winds are blowing, all of that stuff is, 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 is a factor uh, in campaigns. But it comes down to a lot of times, Justin, you know this being around campaigns. It comes down a lot of times to who ran a better campaign. Um, and I think some of this stuff uh, is just straight boogeyman. And, and I would love to see more leaders not just say yes to their party all the time, but really stick to their principles and think about what their voters believe. Because I, I think that a lot of people are are actually out of step with where the voters in, in their districts and in their states really are. And if if they really went toward that, I think folks could still win campaigns. So that that's where I am on it. I like it because I'm not 100% buying that broader narrative um, that if you don't say yes to Trump uh, on on the right, if you don't say yes to the most uh, you know leftward version of progressivism uh, on the left, that that you're doomed. I don't think that's true. Yeah, I mean that maybe perhaps that's not an assumption that we should make. And to your and to your point, we should encourage this, right? We shouldn't just see and say, "Yeah, we like this." No, encourage people to do that, and discourage folks who just bend the knee to things that they shouldn't be be bending the knee uh, to. Now, I want to be very clear. I have a lot of friends and mentors and everyone else who are uh, elected officials who uh, serve and just put in a lot of time and deserve our respect. Uh, and res- and deserve our support. So this isn't just a- attacking everybody. But I do want us to understand that the nature of politicians in many instances is very different than we think it may be. A lot of politicians are what uh, we would say in the black community are, are, are kind of scary. Right. They're, they're, they're a little shook. There's, this, there's a lot of times this mixture of self-interest 
and fear, right? Where you want, you, you know, you want to be in office as long as you can. And you know that that's not necessarily in your hands, that donors and outside groups and voters have something to do with that. So there's always a little bit of this fear. And so sometimes they're not the leaders that they should be. Sometimes we need to realize that elected officials need our guidance, need our correction, need our encouragement, need our discouragement when they're not doing the right things. We cannot, and I've said this so many times, we cannot treat elected officials like we're fans. Like we're just so, you know, they come around. One of the worst things I hate seeing is an elected official to come into a church and the folks are just fawn all over them. No, be respectful. You got to you got to set the tone uh, for this conversation because we expect certain things to come from our elected officials. If we're just fawning all over them and falling all down because we're near power, then we're doing ourselves and our community an injustice. And we have to realize that we need to push and encourage and all those other things I said our elected officials to do the right thing. They're not just to be kind of followed. We need to make sure that they're representing and doing the right thing for the people. Any last, any final words, uh, Chris? I just want to add my amen to that. I mean, that that was the, the, the last thought that I had is to encourage us that we've got a role to play uh, in this because um, we get to raise our hand, raise our voices, write letters, visit uh, district offices, um, and and make these politicians know that we are here, and not just when we're against what they're doing, right? Like w- when folks take a good principled stance, like I'd love it if there were a whole bunch of believers in Nebraska right now trying to figure out how to make their senator feel encouraged uh, and emboldened um, for standing up and telling the truth. That's real. When when your when your elected official stands ten toes down on principle and does what needs to be done, they need to be congratulated. They need to be acknowledged. Well, that's the end of this episode, folks. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget that if you support what we're doing, please go to our Patreon. It's the Church Politics Patreon, and just show some love. Like we always say, it's great to be to get the content and and process the content, but to become part of the movement, we need you to help us spread this content. All right. So go to the Patreon, show them some love every month. It could be uh, $50. It could be $5. It could be $100. Just show us some love if you can. As always, Ann Kemp, there's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, man, Camp. Follow. Oh, Lord, I said, Kingdom.